This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted to be with you this morning. Um, coming up, actually, I guess for you, it might not be morning, depending on when you're listening to this, but for me, it is actually 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, so that that is when I like to record, is early in the morning when it's a little bit quiet, although Clayton is a little bit fractious this morning, so he might be chiming in later on in this episode. And speaking of later on in this episode, coming up later, um, it's still going to be me talking. Uh, That sound you hear in the background, by the way, is Clayton clawing open the closet door. He gets mad at me when I'm not paying attention to him. And so he looks for things to vandalize or knock down. And um, right now he's going after the linen closet. Clayton, what's the matter, kitty? Ah, there we go. (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm not paying attention to you. I am recording my podcast, but I I promise I will be all yours when I am finished. I record, of course, in my closet, so Clayton is now looking around for things that he can destroy in my closet as a punishment to me for not paying sufficient attention to him. I have, for the most part, cat-proofed the closet. But as you can hear, Clayton is determined to find something. How's it going? Any luck down there? All right. Anyway, um, so yes, coming up later in this episode, it's still going to be me talking. Um, I have just not really been on top of booking guests since the, the podcast came back, although I do plan to start doing so once again. Um just a lot of stuff going on, which I will talk about in a moment. I'm actually a little bit upset this morning, and and I'm going to turn to the combined wisdom of my listenership for assistance on this, and and I'll tell you what's going on. So uh, about six years ago, Lawrence and I went to London. It was my first time in London, and I had an amazing time. It was an incredible trip. Uh, I, I Love London for a lot of reasons, but also because if if you are a person who loves bookstores, then London is definitely a target-rich environment. And I came home with, I'm not kidding, I think about 75 books. We actually had to buy a new piece of luggage for me to bring home all my books in, which was very, very exciting. Um, and, and I didn't have to buy any more books, I think for like a year and a half. I mean, I did buy a few more books in that time period because that's just the ABCs of me, but I didn't have to, I I had my reading material for the next 18 months or so. And, and that's the point anyway, but one of the bookstores that we went to, um, is a bookstore called Jarndyce 
antiquarian booksellers. Uh, those of you who are Charles Dickens fans and specifically fans of the novel Bleak House may recognize the name Jarndyce um, from that endless lawsuit in the novel Bleak House, Jarndyce and Jarndyce. And so, yes, Jarndyce Books is named for that, 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 for Bleak House, for the lawsuit in Bleak House. And they're an antiquarian bookseller, as I said, and I treated myself to a first edition of a late 19th century illustrated collection of Grimm's fairy tales. And it was not crazy expensive, but it had all these beautiful original drawings and and I just really liked it. Anyway, so the the good people at Jarndyce Books um, gave me a a canvas tote bag that that says jarndyce on it as a you know to go along with my book and and i love that canvas tote bag and now here i don't know how it is where you guys live um but here in jersey city and now throughout i I think the tri-state area not just jersey city where i live but i think all of new jersey and also manhattan um they have done away with what's called single use bags and that means if you go to the grocery store or to the drugstore etc cetera, etc cetera. basically any place you go shopping you have to come with your own bag because you can no longer get a plastic shopping bag or even a paper shopping bag in which to bring your things home you can for an additional i think dollar buy a a very th- this kind of very thick plastic bag and the idea being that you can reuse this bag because it's so thick and because you've paid for it I don't know. You know, I get what they're going for. I, I see what they're trying to do. I understand that it really is a problem, but I'm thinking maybe the, the solution might be to just go with paper bags and get rid of plastic as opposed to getting rid of all single use bags. Because the thing is, I just see people buying these these re, quote unquote reusable plastic bags and then not reusing them. And meantime, anytime you get any kind of food delivered, they bring it in these like 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 kind of faux cloth little bags. Um I'm not really describing them very well, but they're not like a real cloth. They're very flimsy and they're just kind of piling up. And again, the idea being that you can reuse these bags, but but they are very flimsy. You don't really want to reuse them, but you're not supposed to throw them away either. And so it's just kind of a mess. But anyway, I am really digressing. The point being, I have this canvas bag. I love this canvas bag. I use it now, especially that you have to have your own bags wherever you go. I have it with me all the time. It has replaced my purse, basically, like I no longer have any kind of uh, a purse, fancy designer or otherwise, it's this canvas tote bag because it's just so much more convenient um, to have a bag with me at all times that I can also shove things into if I end up deciding to stop off for a loaf of bread or something like that on my way home from wherever I am. So it needed, you know, it, it needed to be washed and I've washed it before, um, but this time I noticed that it needed to be washed a few days ahead of doing the laundry. So I just kind of tossed it into the washing machine, into figuring that when I did my laundry for the week, it would already be in there and that way I would not forget to wash it. But what happened was that in the few days that it sat in the washing machine, and some of you may already know where I'm going with this, um, it became covered in mildew, in black mildew. And I have run it through the washing machine now three times and the mildew is not gone. I mean, some of it's gone, but a lot of it is still there. And I am heartsick because I don't know that I'm going to be in London again anytime soon. And even if I am, I don't know that I'm going to be making a visit to the pricey 
Jarndyce Antiquarian booksellers anytime soon. I have emailed them and asked if I could maybe buy a replacement bag and, you know, just the bag and, and pay for the shipping. I have not heard back from them yet. Um, but if anybody within the sound of my voice has any advice as to how I can get mildew, you know, remove mildew from a, a white canvas bag or kind of an off-white canvas bag, I am all ears and would certainly be very grateful for any suggestion. So that's probably enough of that. Clayton has actually left. He is now sleeping on the bed in the bedroom um, that is adjacent to this closet. So my guess is that my fascinating bag story uh, did not keep him sufficiently amused. And he is now out of sheer boredom sleeping someplace else. So I will take that as a sign that I should be changing the subject. Clayton, of course, has been incredibly clingy since I returned from my trip to Greece and Albania. I was gone for about three weeks, which I, I realize, you know, your mileage may vary. To some people, that's going to sound like a very long trip. To other people, it's going to sound like not much of a trip at all. But I will say that as far as Clayton is concerned, it is a, a good uh, it's it's twice as long as I've probably ever been away from him. I don't think I've ever been away from him more than than 10 days at a stretch. That trip to London that Lawrence and I took was a 10-day trip. And of course, during the era, you know, for a good two or three years, we we weren't taking any trips at all because of COVID. And in the life of a cat, you know, Clayton is a 10-year-old, is now 10 years old. So two or three years in the life of a 10-year-old cat is is a very long time and probably long enough for him to have forgotten that we ever did take 10-day trips. And then this was almost a 21-day trip. And Lawrence was not gone for that long. Lawrence was only gone for a week. Um, but Clayton is still very, very clingy. He he really does need to be near me or or within earshot at all times. He's also He's also been always kind of jealous of Lawrence or, or any attention that I pay to Lawrence, but now he's really resentful of any attention that I pay to Lawrence. And he will actually, you know, when we're sitting at the dining room table eating, he gets on the table and stands in between us um, and gives Lawrence his tush and me his face and just meows at me uh, very angrily as in like, look at me. Why are you talking to him? Look at me. And I, I don't love Clayton being on the table while we eat, for starters. Uh, I certainly don't, uh, truly, anytime, if he comes downstairs and Lawrence and I are sitting on the couch talking, he gets immediately gets in the middle of us and starts meowing at me very angrily. Um, he, he has just really come to believe that any time I spend paying attention to anyone or anything other than him is, is not kosher. And um, yeah, not sure what to do about that. I'm really hoping that this is going to be something that that fades as Clayton becomes more comfortable with with the knowledge that I am not going to leave him for three weeks again. Although Lawrence and I do have a two week trip planned for late February, um, but hopefully by then Clayton will be calmer. And it's only two weeks; it's not three weeks this time. So, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Lawrence is turning sixty, and we're taking a trip for his birthday. And yeah, hopefully it will not traumatize Clayton. Well, I was going to say too much. Hopefully it will not traumatize Clayton at all. We do have a wonderful new pet sitter. Uh, those of you uh, who are part of my Patreon community and get some of the bonus podcasts uh, may know about some of the the issues that we've had with finding a pet sitter. And I should say, and I, I hope he's listening to this week, we had a wonderful parks, uh, pet sitter named Mark 
um, who my cats loved and and knew basically their whole lives and and really just the greatest pet sitter ever. And he recently fell ill and has been unable to return to work. I do hope, Mark, that you are able to come back to us eventually. I I know the cats miss you and would be delighted to see you. Clayton, apparently, according to our new pet sitter, took a little bit of time to warm up to her. Um, Clayton has had uh, quite a few sort of ad hoc and impromptu pet sitters over the past six months as we we attempt to move forward in in the wake of of losing Mark as our pet sitter. And so Mark, if you were listening to this, I, I we love you and we miss you and we certainly hope you are up and about and and well enough again to um to bring joy back into the lives of the cats who love you so much and who miss seeing your smiling face. So I don't really have a segue here into the next part of the podcast or the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which when I started recording, I actually envisioned myself talking about first. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to take a a very short break of about 30 seconds or so. And when I come back, it will once again be me talking. Um, but I, I'm going to use kind of that that artificial construct of, of the break as a segue instead of an actual segue into my next conversational topic. So a- anyway, just sit back, relax, get comfortable and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cattail. much for sticking around, those of you who were brave enough to do so. Um, so very exciting news. I, I have a new book coming out. It is, I'm actually having a, a layout designer working on the layout as we speak, which means that it's done. The text is done. Those of you who are a part of my early reader program are going to get your ebook copies uh, this week. If you, if you don't already have it by the time you're listening to this, you will have it within a day or two of hearing this podcast. Um, and this is my first new book in, in a couple of years. So I am excited. And, and so this is actually a book. Uh, this is a follow up, by the way, to Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. This book is called You Are Possum, 75 Reasons Why Your Cats Love You and Why Loving Them Back Makes You a Better Human. And this was a book that I meant to have completed and published a long time ago. I should probably not confess this, but I I did. Um, I I really meant to have this out much earlier in 2021, actually. And a big chunk of it was written in 2021. And I I ended up putting it down and and I would pick it up sort of peripatetically. And and every so often I, I would write a couple of entries and then put it back down for months at a time. And I, it, you know, some of that I guess some of that was honestly, I just maybe needed a little bit of a break from writing. I've been writing pretty continuously for the last few years, especially with the pandemic and I, I you know, the Possum and, and another collection of stories I, I published pretty quickly early on in the pandemic. I, I think some of it may be that I just needed a little bit of a break. Um, I, I also, though, have been taking 
classes. And this is something that I've been enabled to do by the generosity of my Patreon community. And those of you who are longtime listeners are familiar probably with at least my explanations of Patreon. Um, but Patreon is, is basically a, a, a service, a, 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 a website, a platform that allows you to become a patron of a creator whose work you respect and admire for, you know, anywhere from $3 to $100 a month. So there's all different kinds of levels and, and it does not have to be a particularly big commitment. But the idea being that you are providing financial support like like the patrons in the olden days, like like the Medici. The, what is wrong with me? The Medici's in Florence. Um, a little bit off my game this Sunday morning. Um, so you can you can like the Medici's of Florence. You also can be a patron of an artist or a creator whose work you support and admire. And in exchange, you get some cool stuff. You get early access to things. You get freebies. You you get, uh, you know, if you go to my Patreon page, it's patreon.com. And that's like the word patron with an E in it. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Gwen Cooper. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, but with the generosity of my Patreon community, I have been taking some college level math and marketing and quantitative analysis classes over the course of the past year and change, uh, you know, sort of continuing education. And, and so that is also, and, and I am not a math person. So I originally signed up for some of these classes and then realized I was really going to have to go back and dig into some essentially remedial math uh, before I was going to be able to proceed with doing what I wanted to do. But the goal of all of this, which I am finally about to put into fruition starting this holiday season, is to begin advertising my books um, on Amazon and on social media. And I want to be able to tell when my ads are working and when I'm getting value for the money, which ads are paying off, which ones aren't. And there is some, there's some complicated, there's some complicated math that goes into that. This is really the quantitative side of marketing that even though I used to be a marketing professional, I never really dug into. And I, I will tell you why this has been important to me. This is a, a little bit of a um, curl up with a cattail confessional, uh, a, a little bit of inside baseball, I guess, when, when the, the inner workings of, of being a working writer. So I am, of course, extraordinarily lucky and grateful for the success that Homer's Odyssey enjoyed. And in a world, you know, in, in a publishing industry where the typical book will sell maybe 1,200 copies over the course of its lifetime. And when I say typical book, I mean like something like 90-something percent of books never sell more than twelve to 1,500 copies. Um, and so in that context, the 300,000 copies that Homer's Odyssey has sold in the United States alone is, is a tremendous accomplishment of which I am very, very proud. Um, but, and of course there's a but, and, and this is not one of those cases where everything that precedes the but is untrue because I am incredibly proud of that, it, it, everyone, right? Anyone who's read the sequel knows that it was definitely an uphill battle to get Homer's Odyssey published, and and there were just so many doubters and people who did not think that there was an audience for a cat book, that there was an audience for a book about a blind cat. Um, it, it really that that much like Homer himself, that book was was sort of like the little engine that could, and and definitely had to in, face down a lot of skepticism 
and and doubt and a certain amount of distaste. Uh, the idea of publishing a book about an eyeless cat did not appeal to everyone. Uh, there, there, I got a lot of really visceral gut reactions that that just found it sad or 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 I hate using this word, but kind of you know off putting. Let's say. Um, but having said all of that, I will also note that that all of the other big cat memoirs, with the exception of the one, uh, what was that called? Making Rounds with Oscar, you know, that, that cat who could tell when people were going to die in the nursing home, which I did not read because my first thought is just keep that cat away from me. I, I get it. And it's cool. And he provided a valuable service, I guess. Um, but that was one that did not strike me as a premise that I particularly wanted to read about. Um, but I did read, you know, I read Dewey and I read the book about Bob the Street Cat and and, and the book about Nala. Um, but I will say that all of those books have done much, much better than Homer's Odyssey in terms of sales. And for example, the, the book about, you know, I mean, like, like the book about Bob, the, the Bob the Street Cat, I think has sold four or five million copies. Um, and Dewey also did much better. And, and the book about Nala did too. And you know, there, to some extent, and, and so there are, are a few caveats to that. You know, to some extent, I think it might just be the a question of the fundamentals at play. Um, I knew from the beginning that as, as much as I always believed a book about Homer could do well, I also accepted that there would be people who would be put off by the idea of reading a book about a blind cat. Uh, there are people who would be creeped out by the fact that Homer didn't have any eyes. There would be people who, where it wasn't even a question of, of eyelessness per se, but who just, it would sound sad to them. Um, I always think my dad would have been someone like that if he did not know me, if he didn't know Homer, um, because he, it really was a long time. I think part of, honestly, he was overly impressed with me. And and with my adoption of Homer, because I think my father never really got over the idea that, that it was just the saddest thing, that this idea of a blind cat was just the saddest thing. And that if Homer himself was not sad, it could only be because I was some sort of a miracle worker with cats. When the truth of the matter is, and, and I'm at great pains to explain this in the book, that Homer was a happy cat who was blind, and he had always been blind. And for him, it was not a big deal. And it presented some challenges, but it also gave him some abilities and skills that other cats didn't have. And much like with blind people, um, you you play the hand that you're dealt and and you live your life. So but but the point being that I there just were I, I realized that there would be a lot of people who just say, I, I don't want to read about a blind cat. So I think that was part of it, you know, that probably is sort of an inherent limitation, let's say, on Homer's story. I will also note that all of those books, um, really almost all of the the cat memoirs, certainly the ones that have been more successful than mine, were written by ghost writers. So the, the, the person actually with the story is not the one who wrote the story. And my point is not that, that ghost writers are better writers than I am, um, because I do not believe that, but they do certainly write in a different way. And if you're a ghost writer, especially for a book like this, where the point is to appeal to a very wide mass audience, then you're not really going to make the book what, what I, when, when I teach writing classes or, or work with writers, when I mentor writers, um, I, I call voicey. You, you know, you're, you're not trying to create a voicey book, by which I mean 
that you're not really trying to create a strong authorial voice. You don't want to, you're not trying to inject too much personality into the story. You don't necessarily want to be too funny or too smart or too anything that might be off-putting for a reader. Um, I, this is not, by the way, trying to sound, I realize this sounds like, like, like backhanded kind of passive aggressive, um, compliments. So let me just say, like, I'm not intending to be complimentary at all. Um, I have tremendous, I mean, I have tremendous respect for ghostwriters and for what they do, but I also feel that what they do is fundamentally different from what I do. Um, I, I take great pride in, in my writing and in my voice as an author. Uh, truly the greatest compliment that that any reader ever pays me is is when I get an, an email or I see a review like on an Amazon or a Goodreads where somebody says, I felt like I was having a conversation with a friend. I feel, I feel like Gwen Cooper is a person I know, and the two of us were sitting down and having a conversation about our cats. And I really love that because that's exactly what I'm going for because I don't want to sound generic and and kind of you know, have a sort of non-voice that isn't going to to turn anybody off. Um, I want to sound like me. I want to sound conversational. I want to sound basically like I sound now. I mean, well, better <laughs> than I sound now over the course of this podcast. But I do want to create that feeling of of intimacy, and because I I think that's what's great about books. You know, a book is is such an intimate. Experience. I always say of, of all the various art forms, if you look at film, painting, sculpture, dance, um, that all of them have their respective strengths. And I think that the great strength of, of books is that a, a book is the most intimate out of all of them, because when you read a book, it really it's a voice in your head. A book is a voice in your head. Uh, having a conversation with you. And so uh, that is something that that I always strive for. But of course, the the downside risk when you flavor anything is that there are going to be people who don't like the flavor. So there are definitely people who don't like my voice, who don't feel that I'm particularly conversational or it's just not a conversation that they want to have. And so that that is always the the risk of injecting too much of your personality into your writing. Um, it's a risk that I take very willingly because I would never want to write a book that I myself would not read with pleasure. And... I'm not writing for me, I'm writing for readers, but I always feel like if if it's not good enough for me, then why would I give it to someone else and expect them to read it? And the point being that that I if somebody decides to take this journey with me, I want them to to understand that I have taken them very seriously into consideration that they were sort of the point the whole time and that the point was for the two of us to have a genuine bond with each other for at least the amount of time that it takes them to read my book that that I am it, that it, it's you know that that I'm not just trying to put out a story that I want someone else to hear or pay me money for but that I'm I'm Oh, this is <laughs> this is getting unexpectedly deep into. I've, this is becoming very psychoanalytical. Um, but I like I'm creating a friendship. I I always like to feel that that for the length of that book, that we are you and I are, are genuinely friends because I am just so grateful to you for having taken the leap of faith and and deciding 
to read what I have written in the first place. It is, I see this as this tremendous favor that you have conferred upon me, and I want very much to give you something genuine in return for that. And the writers who I love the most, I, I feel on some level, are they've made that bargain with me. And so that's the bargain that I always try to feel like I am making with my readers. Um, and I also think, especially if you're right when you're writing about animals, which is such an emotional topic to begin with, it's, it's something I like to think that my reader and I are already bonding on. This is already the source of uh, the, the genuine kernel of a real friendship between us is that we feel the same way about our cats and, and about the animals that we love. Anyway, this is all by way of saying that, so there, there are some, you know, built-in limitations, I, I think, as compared to some of the other cat books that have done better than Homer's Odyssey. It's about a blind cat. It's maybe a narrative that's a little bit more personality-driven because it's not written by a ghostwriter. It, it's, you know, written by, by me. Um, I also sometimes think that, you know, maybe Homer, and, and I say this with so much love, but maybe, you know, I, I always thought his face was the greatest looking face in the world, but it has been suggested to me that he is perhaps not as photogenic as, as Dewey or Nala or Bob or some of these other cats, um, because he was a black cat, because he didn't have eyes, that, that his face might not just be as compelling on a book cover as some of those other cats, um, it's hard for me to be objective about something like that because I, of course, think he is the best looking cat that has ever graced the cover of any book anywhere. Um, I, truly, if I, you know, sometimes the knowledge that that I'm never going to see his face again in this life um, comes to me very strongly even all these years after his passing. And, you know, that's the nature of grief, right? And, and the, the ones who we lose along the way. Um, and sometimes out of nowhere, it just rises up and hits you all over again. And, and so sometimes I realize that I'm never going to see his face again. And so the idea that there would be people who would look at his face and say, meh, not for me, um, is so hard for me to fathom. But of course, I understand everybody, right? Everybody has a different sensibility and a different taste. And I realized that, for example, yes, Dewey, Dewey was such a beautiful cat and, and looked like, like the cat on, on, on the, the Christmas card, the perfect, you know, photogenic, ginger, fluffy, gorgeous cat. And, and Homer was, did not look like that. And, and I acknowledge that. Um, so anyway, so there are all these things swirling around, um, that that may be somewhat inherently limiting to for Homer sales as opposed to sales of some of these other books. Um, by the same token, though, I will say that Homer got a lot less press than these other books when they came out. And I do not say that complainingly. And I should also say that Homer did get a couple of phenomenal bits of press that that really um really just just helped the book sales right out of the gate do just do very very well um some of you may have been may have been with me since in 2009 when I did that hour on the Diane Reem show the day that the book came out and a week later it was the front page of of the cover of the USA Today art section so those were two incredibly huge press hits that the book got uh but by the same token it still did not it got a lot less press than usually books that become bestsellers get. 
uh, which I took to be a sign of just how interested in cat stories people were, that, that there were a lot of people who were waiting for a cat story. And as soon as they heard there was one, they, they went to find it. And this is always my argument that, that we cat lovers who read books are very much an underserved audience in terms of the number of books that we are given telling cat stories. Um, but, but it did get less press than, than those other books. And, and so, you know, my overall feeling, and I hope I'm being somewhat objective about this, my, but my feeling as a marketer is that in a world where, let's say, it, it, the, the book about Bob sells four million copies, that Homer's Odyssey could probably sell 500,000. It, it does not seem to me to be crazy, even if it's not, if people feel like it's not as compelling a story. Homer certainly did not save me from homelessness. Um, it, it's never going to get as much press as that, but I, I, I feel like there's more room for Homer and also for, therefore, for my subsequent cat books, as well as they have all done, to, to do more. And so, you know, and, and this late in the game, I, I don't see any, any big national press hits. I don't think anybody's going to invite me on to Good Morning America or their Today Show to discuss these books at this point, nor do I, is that something that I am even angling for? Um, and word of mouth still continues to do a tremendous job. It's, it's still amazing to me that, that I, I mean, I still get several times a week, I still get emails from readers saying that they just heard about this book from a friend of theirs and read it for the first time and, and loved it. And so it's just amazing that all these years later, I mean, coming up on, on nearly, you know, it's, it's been 13 years, um, and that it's still getting the kind of word of mouth that it does. So having said all of that, my, my feeling that the solution that I've come up with is advertising that I want to find out there. I, there are obviously millions of cat lovers who are willing and, and eager even to read books about cats, but who still have not read or possibly even heard about Homer's Odyssey or any of my other cat books. And so my feeling is that the best way to reach them is is to put a little bit of, of money and, and marketing muscle behind it and, and do some advertising on social media and on Amazon and places like that and see if I can find those new readers. But I do want to do it with, you know, I, I spent enough time, even though this is not what I personally know how to do, this was never my specialty when I worked in marketing. I worked with people whose specialty this was. And I understand that it's not as easy as it looks, that it's not just a matter of, you know, putting ads in cat groups on Facebook and sitting back and waiting for the money to start rolling in. And that there is actually a skill and a science um, and, and some analysis that has to go into this. And so this is what I have been spending a big chunk of the last year and change working on, in addition to working on this book that is finally, finally going to come out just in time for holiday shopping. So this is what I'm going to be working on this holiday season. I am going to be t placing my first ads we will see how it goes. I, I don't know what to expect. I am nervous for a lot of reasons. Um, the main reason that I'm nervous is because this is actually sort of a, a big part of my plan for how to support myself from now until, you know, whenever I shuffle off this mortal coil. It is going to be 
I mean, writing some more books, but also selling more copies of the books that I've already written. And um, so if I can't master this, then then that could be a little bit of a, a hiccup in my life plan. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And I will be sure to continue to share that information with all of you. But in the meantime, I do encourage you to get your copy of You Are Possum, 75 Reasons Why Your Cats Love You and Why Loving Them Back Makes You a Better Human. Um, it should be available for pre-order on Amazon at some point within the next week, and it will be coming out on November 29th. So yeah, I, I encourage everyone to to check it out. It's a fun little book. I think it's you know part of the the reason for the timing aside from the fact that it's just taken me so long to write it and now it's finally done, is of course holiday shopping. I like to think that the two possum books will make a nice little little gift set for the cat lover in your life or, or possibly a little treat for yourself. And uh, yeah, if you have not bought the first one, I definitely encourage you to check that out. And, and certainly I encourage you, I, I ask you, I plead with you, please, um, to check out the second one as well. This, this book, I will say, you know, it's a fun little book. I definitely wrote it to to give everyone a laugh and and certainly it makes me it gives me a little chuckle as I go back and reread it now ahead of publication. But I will say this is definitely my also kind of a love letter to cat people uh, because I I genuinely do think and this is something I talk about a lot. There really are all these social stereotypes uh, about cats and about people who like cats and particularly women who like cats and crazy cat ladies and and how we're weird and antisocial or we like cats too much or I, I don't even know, you know, all this nonsense. And I really, my feeling is always that that among the, the other extraordinary privileges um, that I have been lucky enough to enjoy since publishing my first cat book, Homer's Odyssey, one of one of the incredible incredible pri- privileges that being a writer about cats has conferred upon me is that it has brought me in touch with so many amazing people who also love cats you know that writing about my cats has become a a vehicle that has brought me in touch with so many outstanding humans and i do genuinely believe that that people who love cats people who love animals but people who love cats specifically are actually some of the greatest, funniest, most giving, most loving human beings on the face of God's green earth. And so this, whereas the, the first book was my love letter to cats, and and I think everyone who liked that book appreciated it on that level, because of course we all love our cats. But this book is very much a love letter to you and to to those of you out there who love cats and who make room in your lives for these quirky, silly, uh, often vexing little creatures who nevertheless bring so much joy into our lives. And on that very positive and loving note, I am going to say goodbye for now. But please do be sure to join me next week for an all new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me. 
And don't forget to hug your cat today. 